0: Welcome to Racing Hard, a podcast presented by the National Centre for Sports Cardiology, an institute that specialises in an athlete's most important tool, their heart. My name is Alex Clements, and today on the podcast, we're discussing COVID vaccines and the effect that it has on athletes with Dr. Andre Laguerche. Love to get your thoughts on this episode. And if you do have any follow up questions, please send them through on social media or on YouTube or however you're consuming this podcast. And if you do want to support Racing Heart, presented by the National Center for Sports Cardiology, please leave us a review on the iTunes Store or share this podcast with a friend. I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, before we get started, the views expressed in this podcast are designed to be general in nature and should not be used to substitute for personal medical assessment. Maybe extra topical in this podcast we're talking about COVID vaccines we're talking about COVID itself and the effect that it has on athletes and their hearts what currently do we know we're speaking in November 2021 for context what, what, what do we currently know about athletes and COVID and the vaccine and how it's all played out so far yes
1: yeah, so we had to have a crack at this didn't we it's it, it dominates every single conversation part of me thinks, oh, it's, it's so covered, it's boring. But there's there are some really relevant things for athletes. Um, it also very much um, – it's important to realise that everything that we talk about with COVID, when you watch the news, is kind of presented a little bit binary, good, bad, whatever, whereas everything is a spectrum. So, f- for example, when we talk about COVID with athletes – the vast majority of young, healthy athletes who get COVID um, will have a mild, a mild illness, and will recover. But um, there is the the small number of athletes who will, um, for reasons we don't understand, who can become very sick. And because there's so many people get infected, there will be young, healthy athletes potentially who die. But On average, one of the strongest predictors of how you'll go through COVID um, is your fitness. And if you like, everyone understands that age is important. Older people tend to become more sick and older people are more likely to die. It probably is that biological age is more Important than chronological age. What I mean by that is that some people that are ver- some very fit and healthy sixty-year-olds are in fact, you know, biologically younger than some unhealthy forty-year-olds, um, and and that biological age and fitness, as a measure of that, has been shown in several studies um, to be a really important determinant. So, if you're if you're fit and healthy, you're less likely to get um, very sick with COVID.
0: Mm. Similar to, I guess, what like we've been talking about through this podcast series around um, the risks that athletes face for doing too much exercise.
1: Yeah, and and I think that you know, there's exercise and how the body responds to that is is such a healthy thing in almost every domain, and and um, COVID's proving that again. You know that in a way, COVID's interesting because. If you get sick with COVID, it, the, what the illness does is reduces the oxygen to the blood. A lot of the toxins associated with the virus result in you dropping your blood pressure. All of these things require you to increase your cardiac output. And athletes are very well-trained to do that. So even if you become really sick, you're more able to cope with that if you're well-trained and you're athletic. What I meant before about it being sort of non-binary is that is that if you just sort of rest on the laurels and there's some, there's some good examples of this, but if you sort of say, ah, look, it'll never happen to me, you can be very unlucky. And there are some very fit athletes who have become very unwell with COVID. Um, So I can't give an, no one can give an insurance policy. Mm. And it's a very common infection. So I'm not for for a moment um, saying that athletes um, are sufficiently, you know, Unlikely to be get really unwell that they can forego the vaccine. Um, we'll we'll get a chance to discuss, but there's there's a number of reasons why people should get vaccinated uh, that extend beyond just your own you know health risk. But um, but certainly it it also would be incorrect to suggest you know it is important to emphasise. That athletes um, who do get COVID are unlikely to get very, very sick with it. We've studied a few um, professional athlete groups. We studied a team of um, professional basketballers, and some of them were were really laid out three you know three days of feeling absolutely terrible, um, but they all recovered. They all recovered completely. We put them absolutely through the ringer. We we did MRIs, echocardiograms, exercise testing, heart rhythm everything and we found nothing at day 10 to 14 after the illness so um, you know uh, and that that fits with with other studies around the world where where people have looked at elite athletes um, elite and non-elite athletes that they tend to recover quickly and recover completely but on the other hand again in the the basketball team that we studied before the vaccine was available um, I'm sure they would have preferred to have a mild illness than four days of feeling absolutely terrible lying in bed. Mm. So already I'm sure if you asked those people who, who were infected that they would be very pleased um to to have had a modified illness through a vaccine. So it's not all just about whether you'll whether you'll survive or not, it's also whether you can avoid um, you know, a week lying in bed feeling absolutely shocking.
0: Mm. The Cycling news media potted up this week as one of the ex highly successful athletes is in hospital with COVID. Like what 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 do you read what do you read into those kind of reports and what, what are they actually saying in terms of what does that mean? Yeah, so so Posato, I think, is is in is
1: or was in hospital, I think is in hospital with really quite severe COVID illness and, and he had Um, low oxygen levels or desaturated and and was taken to hospital. On the other hand, you have athletes like I think um, uh, Banal after after the Giro d'Italia contracted uh, COVID and seemed to just have little or no symptoms. And that just shows the variability of the illness. One person's fine, the other one's very sick. What it does tell you, and Pizzato was very outspoken himself saying, I thought I was kind of too fit, too well to become so, so became a bit complacent. And there's a really important message there because he's like the picture of, he's an extremely healthy, um, middle aged, even young middle aged, uh, 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 elite athlete who's, who's ended up in hospital desperately unwell. So, you know, I wouldn't be playing the odds and saying, look, you know, 95% chance I'll just have a mild. I would be thinking, one, I'd rather have a mild illness rather than be laid up in bed. And two, I don't want to take the odds of of the unlikely but chance of being desperately unwell. Mm. And he said that very clearly. He said, I, I wish I'd not been so stupid.
0: Is the research world getting involved in the actual athletic effects of for athletes in terms of their heart, and then also what COVID and the vaccine means for them? Yeah, so particularly in the post-COVID world, so
1: um, competitive sport in in the US and and Europe, particularly there, where the, where um, the the there were many more infections, and one of the question came that came up was can can people get back onto the sporting field when what tests do we need to do to check that they've not had any sort of heart problems from from the virus and initially you know initially when we were a bit less when we had less information available we, there was really quite a cautious approach taken and so we were tending to do blood tests imaging and then with the passage of time we've really we've realized that people who have little or no symptoms people who have mild illness the chances of them having problems that create any issues in return what we call return to play or getting back to competition are so remote um, that that we don't need to do massive screening campaigns in other words in short if you have a mild illness you're going to be fine returning to sport if people have a more significant illness then it is worth you know seeing your doctor and and um, uh, potentially getting some tests done just to check that everything's fine. Mm.
0: You touched on it before around um, the effects of your cardiology and the respiratory system. Like, how can you just run us through like what's actually happening to the body and and how the cardiology system's involved in that? Sure. So. In uh, COVID is um,
1: kind of described as a as a multi organ or generalized illness. So it does affect a lot of the body systems. Having said that, the predominant issue is inflammation and particularly inflammation of the lungs. And to um, some extent the blood vessels. So by inflammation, what that means is kind of um, a bit like having a skin rash and having a buildup of pus cells. Those things happen within the lungs and within the blood vessels. In the lungs, the consequence is that it stops the air getting in so or oxygen getting in, so you become... Um, Uh, very short of breath um, and, and oxygen's needed to perfuse or to give nourishment to the brain and to the muscles and everything. So in really severe disease, that's the biggest problem. Then you have sort of some bystander problems like in the blood vessels that are inflamed, you can get clots developing and those clots can cause what we call pulmonary emboli or sudden blockages to the lungs or heart attacks through blockages of the blood vessels those the heart the effects on the heart and the blood vessels and and you know in some cases to to the brain as well they tend to occur in in really severe covid so the heart is more caught up as a bystander in severe illness um and and you know in people with mild disease we we really very uncommonly see problems with the heart due to covid
0: what about people that uh already have Cardiology issues is does it inflame or increase their
1: risk? It does. Um, interestingly, it increases their risk of um, of having more severe. Illness, um, probably a a bit to do with that biological age thing we brought up before. But then, if they become unwell, there's less what we call reserve, or less. Like I was saying, that the athletes can generate more output from the heart. If you've got a problem with your heart, um, and there's a ceiling on what it can do, then you know if you don't have enough oxygen, there's problems with your lungs. Your heart needs to pump more around, and it can't. Then that's that's you know that's unfortunately. Curtain's time, you know that that's when people do die when there's mm. not enough uh, reserve in the body's organs to get past the illness. And unfortunately, um, and one of the reasons there is all this emphasis on vaccine is that there's not great treatments once you get it. There are, you know, there are some treatments available, and there's some that are being tested and might come out. But none of them are brilliant. So if you become really sick and you're relying on things like steroids, then you're already deep into the fourth quarter.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so that's the um, COVID effect on the cardiology system, then the vaccine effect to the other end. What, what do we know about that currently?
1: So the vaccine effect from a cardiology point of view is really interesting. So basically the vaccine is, is – very effective at, um, at reducing severe illness. It's um, also moderately or very effective at preventing you becoming infected. But certainly if you become infected, it prevents you from, from severe illness. And as a result of that, you're less likely to get severe inflammation of the lungs and the side effects on blood vessels and the heart. The if you like the downside of that from a from a heart perspective, is that with particularly well exclusively the mRNA vaccines, so in Australia Pfizer and Moderna, um, there is a risk of the heart causing inflammation, and that seems to be um, as common as as the virus. It's you know the virus itself. So. Um, for that one problem associated with COVID, the 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 myopericarditis, myocarditis, myo means heart muscle, or myocardium, heart muscle, and the itis means inflammation. So you get inflammation of the heart muscle, and pericarditis refers to this layer around the heart that sort of. Um, uh, lubricates the heart, and that can become inflamed. So that myopericarditis uh, can occur with the vaccine. It also can occur with COVID, and they occur about the same extent. So you sort of think, well, hang on, why would I take a vaccine um, if the, the side effect is is as bad as the virus itself? That That's because, one, it's uncommon, myopericarditis with the vaccine, and with covid but also it's by far the least serious of the covid problems so the one problem with that type of vaccine is the least of the problems with covid mm. if that if that makes sense so it's um i suppose the other question why do you get it so taking kind of taking a step back the way that vaccines work is that you know the reason we have an immune system is you need to protect yourself from from external things getting in, if you like. So our immune system attacks bad things that come in through our food, through the gut, have an immune system all through the gut lining, through our lungs, on our skin. If you don't have an immune system, it's extremely dangerous. The way that, so, you know, when we've got a new virus, we want the immune system to, to fight that but the first time that it sees a virus it's the it takes a while for the immune response to to happen so the the vaccine is designed to stimulate the immune response to to the to the covid virus what the problem with the vaccine can be is that that immune response that protects you from outsiders can can sort of overlap with some of the tissues in the body we call it autoimmunity so the the response to the vaccine saying I want to create a sort of a immunity to um, COVID if it comes, but there's something in the vaccine that is similar to the heart muscle and the and the lining that means that in in some people uncommonly it can overreact and and, um, and you get inflammation against your own heart and heart lining tissues. It, it is said to occur in about one in 20,000 people. It's more common in young people, um, frustratingly. It's more common in young males than young females. It's been reported in US military recruits to occur in about one in 20,000 people. The experience of cardiologists, and you've got to remember that we're the ones who see you know, um, myopericarditis. It comes to us. Our feeling is that we're seeing it Significantly more commonly than one in twenty thousand. Um, that's not really a surprise. Often, when you first see something, you don't realise how common it is. There's a bit of a saying. You don't. You can't diagnose anything until you know about it. So it probably is more common than that. It's still uncommon. I wouldn't say it's rare. Um, it is the the problem with these side effects. The vaccine is that the side effects are most common in the people who have the least to benefit in a way. So young people are the least likely to get really sick and yet they're slightly more likely to get these side effects, which is frustrating. At the same time, we've got to remember that even then, it's a side effect that tends to be mild and I'll come back to that, but it's also, um, uh, you know, it's still... Overall, much less likely that you'll get sick from myopericarditis than than you would, than you would from the virus. Um, myopericarditis, when we see it, tends to be mild and tends to recover completely. Uh, even though I've seen you know, several cases of um, Pfizer and Moderna-related myopericarditis, they have all been mild and they have all completely recovered.
0: Mm. that was my next question so if you are that one in twenty thousand, like what do i feel like when i'm coming to see you and then what are my odds yeah once so, i become that person so
1: my pericarditis is quite a distinct syndrome it, it um most commonly occurs from half a day to five days after mostly the second dose of either Moderna or Pfizer it can occur after the first dose but mostly the second dose half a day to five days afterwards again that's the most common there's some variability and it and people will present with really quite significant chest pain that is worse in 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 movements things like sitting forward and also in taking big breaths or coughing Um, sometimes there can be a little bit of sort of heaviness or a feeling like a pushing on the chest but mostly it's that sort of um, worse pain with breathing, and it tends to respond well to anti-inflammatory medications. Um, no one, obviously, no one wants inflammation of their heart, um, and it's something that that we take seriously, um, and especially in young he- people, young healthy people. And so we watch we watch people very carefully. The chances of having a significant complication from from this inflammation of the heart is very very small. So it's something that occurs very uncommonly. If it occurs, the chance of it causing serious problems is very, very low.
0: And this type of vaccine is the new vaccine. Is is that the reason why there's still these unknowns attached to the connections and the the possible uh, outcomes of having the vaccine?
1: Yeah. So. Uh one of the one of the concerns or critiques with with the vaccines is that they've been pulled together very quickly. you know and and it's funny because that's now seen as a bit of a negative, where in fact it's an unbelievable blessing. You know when this all started, people can probably remember the experts coming out and saying it's probably three to five years before we'll have an effective vaccine. And then you know f- through the miracles and some very modern technologies as well, we've got, you know, five or six or more vaccines that are effective um, around the world that have really had an influence on changing. It's saved millions of lives. So you've got the good side, which is that we've very rapidly pulled together a very effective defence. And then you've got the slight issue that, that we you know we don't have a really good handle on the long-term effect of the vaccines. How can we have? They've only been around for sort of you know 12, whatever it is now, 12, 18 months, um, 12 months probably. So the, the, those doubts could be there. Um, there's to a degree, particularly some of the vaccines are alterations on quite established technologies where we've not seen long-term problems. Also, as time is going on, we're not seeing new things pop up. The the side effects that we're seeing from the vaccines have all been short-term. So that is reassuring. The other thing with the vaccines is that even though they've been around for a short period of time, we have never seen any medication or vaccine um, campaign on this scale. So it is... You know, we've accumulated. When, when you put together a study, uh, you want to think about the power of the study. You know, the ability to answer the question as to whether it works and whether there's side effects. And one of the ways that you try to work out whether you can do that study well is how many people you can have. You know, how in um, how many numbers. And this has been done on a massive scale, and so we've been able to work out much more quickly than any other medication in the past, whether it works, and also what sort of side effects it has. So if you take, for example, AstraZeneca, which has the risk of um, thrombocytopenic thrombosis, or if you like, this immune uh, blood clotting problem that, that got a lot of publicity, and the risk of that is about one in half a million people, you have to have a massive campaign to see a risk that, that's, that is that rare. So if that were a standard medication, we would be realising that that risk exists after 10 or 20 years, you know, when we've got that many people that have used the drug. So the the, the fact that it's been around for a short bit of time is important, but on the other hand, people must realise that we have never t- tested A vaccine vaccines Mm. um, to this degree ever before it's been in millions and millions and millions of arms and the side effects that we're seeing um, are either mild um, myopericarditis for example or extremely rare and serious like the thrombocytopenic thrombosis Mm. so the the you know the risks People have said, you know, th- another drug that that might be used on this sort of scale is something like the oral contraceptive pill, and we don't read about the side effects every night on the news. But it is responsible for pe- for young women having strokes, for example, at a higher rate than if they weren't taking it, and probably on a on a, on a sort of similar scale. So there's a lot of focus on this, and the the side effects um, are. Are rare and generally mild um, compared to any other medication, vaccine, and and things like that that we've seen in the past.
0: When vaccines do get launched and rolled out, uh, is it common for them to have long long term effects? Is um, yeah, is is there genuine, I guess, credit to that concern?
1: Yeah, I mean there hasn't been in the past, so I'm not aware of any va- vaccine. Um, Sort of technology or rollout that has then resulted in in sort of long term side effects. There are there are that's if you like my view that's the mainstream medical view. There are people in society who do believe that vaccines have um, have significant long term side effects that are being unreported or being underreported. But again, you know, vaccines are. Um, One of the most commonly things administered through society, and we just we we don't see long term side effects. It's also interesting when you think about some of if you like some of the dirtier vaccines. So um, when I was younger and went to South America, you had to have a yellow fever vaccine. Probably still do, Um, and that that was associated with more with probably one of the higher side effect profiles. and you, you didn't sort of think twice, Wanted to go to South America, bang in your arm. It's just, I do find it a little bit intriguing. And and what was the risk there? Like, was I really going to get, you know, the chance of becoming unwell with it was so remote, yet you've lined up for this vaccine. Now you've got a virus that's ripping through society and killing millions of people. And you sort of go, oh, do I want this vaccine? It, it is funny how, things have, how mm. things have shifted. And
0: everywhere. It's not just in a specific reason, it's... Yeah. The globe's got it. It's I guess abs- the two the two big scary players are big pharmaceutical companies yep. and government. Yep. Two not so trusted. Yeah, and I tend to
1: I share that skepticism. I mean, the you kind of you can look at it from the the prism of of there's some drug companies making an absolute bomb out of this. Mm. You can also look at it the other way and say, well, they kind of deserve to because they they're saving millions of lives. But really you know, I, I I do understand that. I think it's good to have a natural sort of cynicism, and the question about you know making the the vaccine mandatory is probably something that we could talk for hours on. Um, and and it it's it it is an interesting discussion. The pros of it is that it's not all about you. I mean, we so I sort of touched on it before, but w- One of the things for young people getting vaccinated and young athletes, if you take what I said before, which is that young healthy athletes are the least likely to be admitted to hospital and get severely unwell, then, you know, and there's this small risk of a vaccine, um, maybe the benefits slightly outweigh getting vaccinated in terms of getting... But I often say to, to young healthy athletes, the main reason for getting vaccinated is not in a way to protect you. It's to protect mum and dad. It's to protect the business owner down the street. It's to protect, you know, the 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 lady with breast cancer who you bump into who had her vaccine while she was having chemotherapy and doesn't have good coverage. It The main reason to get vaccinated is so that your chance of getting the virus and passing it on is less, one. And the second is, is to enable us to open society because people – um, often the same people, the ones who are saying, don't want to get vaccinated, then saying we need to open up society. It's very hard to have both. You know, If we're not vaccinated and we open society, then we really have a problem. We have a problem where we're sitting now in the hospitals. We have a problem throughout society. I don't believe that there's anyone sensible who thinks that's an option. So if we want to have people not experiencing the mental health side effects, if we want our kids to still learn in schools, the only way out of this is is vaccination. So in a way, you know, if the government were to be brutally honest with the public, it'd kind of be saying something like, young people out there, school kids out there, we want you to go out and get vaccinated, not because there's a huge risk of you becoming really sick, but because it's an altruistic thing so that we can Get back to the life we want. And for me, you know, I throw the vaccine in my arm any day of the week if I can get back to the sort of lifestyle that we enjoyed two years ago.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Indeed. <laughs> it's a, it, well, I don't know. I think it's a, I <laughs> maybe, think it's a no brainer.
0: Maybe there's a role for you in the, Future health minister of this, <laughs> the problem, country, Andre.
1: The problem is, is and I sympathise <laughs> for them, but the government have to create a bit of a um, a black and white message. I my critique is that I believe that they that there's been too much emphasis on on um, you know get the vaccine or you're going to end up you know really sick or dead. For young people, I think that that. Um, is a real message, but it's very, very rare. The real reason for young people to get vaccinated is, as I just pointed out, to protect the vulnerable and to get back to a normal life. And they're really, really compelling reasons Mm. to get vaccinated.
0: Yeah. The other um, argument that you see pop up is I've had COVID, I've got the antibodies, why would I take the risk of getting the vaccine, which is in theory going to do the same thing? Yep. And that that's a really valid argument. I mean, the,
1: the there's the best um, – we don't know this for sure, but every other illness would tell you that the best immunity you can get is to have the illness. And so if you've had COVID, you have at least for a while likely to have good protection. There, there are cases, there's many cases around the world of people getting COVID uh, more than once, and particularly if it's a variant, but they tend to have a mild illness the second time, much like we have with vaccination. The problem is, is that we can't easily identify whether people have had COVID in the past. So antibody tests are expensive and not particularly reliable. So if we just went around and said, you know, put your hand up if you've had COVID, people would get it wrong. Um, and and there's no way of easily checking. So the reason that um, that that falls down, I've had COVID, so I don't need to get vaccinated, is not because it's sound science. It's just because we can't work with it.
0: Mm. Doesn't have
1: scale, and it just doesn't have an a, a, a rel- easy and reliable way for us to test for that.
0: Yeah. So if yes, yeah, so if but is, there's also benefits too. If you've had COVID, going to Get vaccinated. Yeah. So
1: the one interesting thing with the vaccination, and this is where boosters are coming in, is that it seems that if you've either had COVID or if you've had vaccination and then you have a top up, then the vaccination you get is is really the the immunity you get. Sorry, is very very good. So if you've had COVID and then you have one or two doses of vaccine, then you're kind of super immunised, if Mm. you like. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of benefits.
0: Yeah. It, the benefits that you're talking about before passing it on to your mum or your grandparents, what how much of that do you get from having the vaccine? Yeah, so so the um
1: initially it wasn't clear. So initially it seemed that the vaccines were good at preventing people from getting very sick, but there was uncertainty as to whether it reduced transmission. It's now clear that it reduces transmission as well. Not completely, and you know, this is there's nothing binary so if you're vaccinated fully vaccinated it doesn't mean that you can't get really sick it doesn't mean that you can't even die from the it just reduces the odds dramatically so you know instead of your risk of being severely unwell being around 10% it goes under 1% Similarly, instead of it doesn't mean if you're vaccinated that you can't pass it on, it just makes it less likely. My understanding is something like 60%, 70% less likely. And that's where this kind of concept of herd immunity, the more people you have vaccinated, even though each one can pass it on, if you reduce that by two-thirds and you get a whole lot of people, then then the whole sort of transmission starts to starts to be broken and you end up with few cases. Yeah. And when you think about the people who cannot get vaccinated. So we do research, for example, on, um, on kids who have chemotherapy and um, particularly some types of chemotherapy, they cannot be vaccinated against COVID. So their only protection is how well the rest of us get vaccinated. And I would hate to be living with some sort of concept that my actions contributed to you know a fourteen year old kid who can't get chemotherapy or uh, who has had chemotherapy or some can't have the vaccine uh becoming severely unwell or, or dying i mean that you know although you sort of think oh that's unlikely you're taking an extreme view. That has to, you know, that is how someone. So someone is unlucky enough to be in that chain of transmission for that to occur. And the 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 less likely we make that by by us all getting vaccinated, the better.
0: Mm. And that same message flows on to we're coming into booster season. Everyone's starting to get some months in the bank of having two shots. Um, that same benefit still applies. I know there's a, a bit of concern around the people who've had that first round of vaccines and been sick or ill or had some couple of days of symptoms from it, Yeah, the benefits still lie in that extra shot? Yeah,
1: it seems so. I mean, I I must admit I take the view that, um, you know, nine out of ten of the or, of the, or 90% of the problem-solving is in getting people vaccinated. Um, I, I'm, I think at the moment there's a little bit of almost um, – uh um interference being called about the whole booster debate um because if we had everyone fully vaccinated that's really the key there certainly does seem to be some immunity waning so so particularly overseas um we're seeing you know people who have been vaccinated more than six months ago um then being a, a more likely to become reinfected um it's not like all of a sudden the immunity switches off and then you, but you're probably you know progressively a bit more likely to get a bit more severe disease so it does make it it, it does make some sense um i mean the, the other thing that we probably should discuss as well is that you know can the vaccine i sort of talked about pericarditis, which is the thing that we see in in cardiology as a significant side effect but the other really interesting thing, and as um, getting some, some data from, from Belgium recently where they interviewed their Olympic uh, team, is that the non-specific side effects of the vaccines, which are annoying, um, they're not serious in any way, but for athletes can become quite significant. So they had some reasonably good data and and kind of um, – a lot of it was interview-based. Some of it was pre- and post-testing with the vaccine that showed for two or three weeks after the vaccine that many athletes felt like their performance dropped off. So – you really didn't want to go and get your vaccine and then do the Tour de France next week or your key <laughs> race. Um, and and what the the person who was presenting the research said, which made a lot of sense, is you can prepare for a vaccine, you can't prepare for COVID. And what he meant by that was that if you're smart, you look at your training and say, right, here's three weeks of relative off-season. I can train lighter for that. I'll get my vaccine then and then just – because the – Everyone got back to normal, but for for variable, but one, two, three weeks, some people really felt like their performance had dropped off. That makes some sense because one of the things people might be, you know, athletes listening to this will know that if they have a flu, even a mild flu, sometimes one of the earliest indications you get is is you go and do your training ride and you bonk early or you just you're missing a cylinder. You're like what, and then you become sick two days later. Part of that is because the 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 immune response with cytokines and and different things, they actually can interfere with the muscle's use of oxygen. Um, And so, you know, if when we give a vaccine, we're directly trying to stimulate the immune system that then can cause some problems with oxygen usage. It's such a tiny amount, amount, but when you're used to measuring, you know, if you know that you can sit at 340 watts and then you're at 320 watts, like what's going on and so you know it really has there's quite good experience that that you might feel 10 percent, you know not the super athlete for a couple of weeks Mm. and i think that's a really important thing it's an important thing for planning immunization, immunization it's an important thing for planning booster doses um but you know, that, that would seem to me much better than, than saying, oh, I don't want to get vaccinated and then a week out from the Tour de France getting COVID and then you're in hospital. You know, it, it just it's, – it's, it's a dumb bit of planning for a sensible athlete.
0: It was interesting – well, the, interesting to your points just then that they had, a, they had a Pfizer bus at the Tour de France this year. Yeah. Athletes could just rock up any day they wanted to get the vaccine.
1: Yeah and and I think that there's a couple of issues because they also gave the example of one athlete who had been vaccinated in the midst of an extreme training and racing schedule he actually didn't feel too bad with the vaccine but then got covid and one of their theories was that during really heavy training and competition your immune system can be a bit suppressed so it's not a great time to be getting vaccinated anyway so you know, uh, there's probably some theatre with having a Pfizer bus and driving around the <laughs> Tour de France. It's not when I would be getting vaccinated, and I think that's one of the things we've learned is that athletes should aim to get their vaccination during a relative downtime, both for their performance and for the best immune response.
0: So, um, once you get your vaccine, how long should you give it before you start getting back into um, whether yeah, whether you're riding the Tour de France or whether you're training for? a the Melbourne Marathon. What? Where? How long should you give it before you get back into training?
1: Yeah, so I think it's sensible to take, um, you know, two or three days of really light training after the after the vaccine. There's some some countries have kind of um, made that an official recommendation. I I don't. I don't think the risks nor the kind of data around it is enough to be really scaring people. But it's just sensible. You know, if you have a cold or if you have um, if you have a bit of the flu, you take a few days off. And, and essentially, the vaccine is giving you a mild cold or a mild flu. It's stimulating the same immune process that we would get from a virus. So I would be saying the vaccine for me is the equivalent of a mild cold. I'm going to take a couple of days easy. Don't think you have to stop, but you just take it easy for two, three days, then go back into training but expecting that you mightn't feel at your best for a couple of weeks. So I'd plan it out ahead of key training build-up or racing um, in a relative downtime and not be afraid if you're not feeling your best.
0: Yeah. Another – Um, vaccine side effect that came up, had the abbreviation POTS.
1: Mm -hmm. So, POTS is... postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome it's the write acronym it down as an acronym not as POTS not yes the what does that mean it means that um it means normally when you uh go from lying to standing or sitting to standing your blood pressure um it kind of responds and keeps it even or even increases it and and your heart rate goes up a little bit but but not much whereas in this syndrome the ability of the the nerves that control heart rate and, and blood pressure um mean that your blood pressure doesn't go up when you or sort of drops when you stand up and your heart rate tries to compensate by going really fast and people feel washed out and feel feel terrible overlaps with some fatigue um it's a it's a well-defined syndrome it's actually interestingly been um associated with post viral illnesses and other illnesses like gastro um, for a long bit of time. Now after COVID, so I suppose again, one of my critiques of the messaging with vaccine is has been to use long COVID as kind of a bit of a fear thing. So initially people were always talking about long COVID. You know, it's not just COVID, you've got to think about the you know, I think quoting one in three people or more get this long COVID. That's not been our experience. Long COVID is not common. Um, like any illness, people can feel washed out and not well. But the people who really have ongoing problems um, are uncommon. One of the things that we think that we're seeing is an increase in, in or we're seeing um, the occasional person, not common, but some people after COVID developing this pot syndrome, which probably will improve with time. But it's almost like a yeah a, a, a hangover from the unwellness of the virus, where the nerves and blood vessels are not regulating properly, and it really can make people feel terrible. But it's not common, and and it really would be one of my kind of slight biases that i think we've overplayed the message of long covid understandably because they're wanting to emphasize the fear of the virus to get people to be vaccinated as i've pointed out many times i think there's really good reasons to get vaccinated without having to evoke uh, a fear of of long covid or pots it's it's uncommon uh, i don't think people should be racing to their doctor uh, if they get covid and and certainly or after the vaccine and saying i think i've got this pots thing
0: yeah. The point before about the cancer patient that can't get vaccinated is, the, is there a, a range of circumstances where it's, there's a genuine reason not yeah. to get vaccinated? Yes, so
1: again, I've got my cardiology bias, but in people that have had myocarditis, um, because it's not just related to the vaccine or COVID, um, it is something that can occur due to other viruses or can occur just out of the blue. Um, And so people who have had um, myocarditis recently, within the last um, six months, six to 12 months, should not have one of the mRNA vaccines. People who have one dose of the mRNA vaccine and get myopericarditis should not have a second dose. Um, so there are situations, they're uncommon, um, very uncommon, uh, where, where there's patients where we would be saying you shouldn't be having a, a, an mRNA vaccine. Um, in that situation, for example, you know, if you're a 30 year old and you've had myocarditis recently, you could then go and have AstraZeneca. It becomes a little bit tricky because the current recommendation is that you know that people under the age of of sixty um, are not recommended to have AstraZeneca, or I don't know, not recommended. But um, the preference, I think the official wording is the preference is is an um, you know one of the mRNA, Pfizer or Moderna. I had AstraZeneca. I think it's a very good vaccine. <laughs> thankfully, uh, or not, thinking, But I am under sixty, um, and uh, and I, you know, if I was in that situation, I would have AstraZeneca. I, I I think it's a really good vaccine, and and I think that again the the side effects have been overplayed for for AstraZeneca.
0: Mm-hmm. You talked about it's also at the start the there's not a lot of cures or ways to. Prevent, not not prevent, but treat COVID once people get it. Is is that going to develop? Is that going to evolve? I think it will. I mean, there's some one of the lines that
1: uh, I was directed by a patient to a website about you know not getting vaccinated because the if you treat COVID early and treat it aggressively, then um, then problem solved. But it was interesting to read because the doctor who was suggesting that line of treatment early aggressive treatment involved about 16 drugs, some of which were highly experimental and unproven. And so you've got a vaccine that's been used in millions and millions of people with established and rare side effects, or a cocktail of 16 (laughs) drugs, including anticoagulants and antiparasitic drugs and monoclonal antibodies that would, one, cost an absolute fortune, but there's no way, for example, even a simple thing, we use them all the time in cardiology, I don't want blood thinners unless I need my blood to be thinned. And there's no way I would be, you know, give me a vaccine over a blood thinner every day of the week. So, you know, I'd be really careful. So basically at the moment, I don't think there's a single sensible person who would, Recommend the strategy of treatment over prevention because at the moment the treatments for COVID are incomplete, they're not particularly good. Um, they you know, um, they need to be used when people get very sick, but partly because we don't we don't have a really good treatment. Mm. There there are some there are some drugs coming out at the moment where there's some hope that they'll be a lot more effective than what we've used in the past. But they're they're undergoing um, they're undergoing trials. The history of medications is that the side effects of medications tend to be greater than the side effects of vaccines. So again, I'd I'd be really surprised if they become the dominant way of us treating in the short term.
0: Yep, similar to a, a popular podcaster in the US, Joe Rogan came out when he had COVID on his Instagram channel and reeled off about sixteen different very long. Uh, worded tablets that he was taking, his argument is like, well, I've taken all these things, I didn't have COVID, or oh, I had COVID, I overcame COVID, now look at me and I didn't have to take the vaccine. Yes. So you could reel out, you
1: know, 95 out of 100 100- middle-aged or younger people who get COVID who don't take any medications and could say, look, I haven't taken anything and I've not got sick. I mean, I suspect that his 16 long-worded medications had absolutely nothing to do with him not getting sick. It's just that's how, how it rolls. Had he been one of the unlucky ones who gets very sick, like Pizzato, then you can roll out your 16 long winded and he's in hospital getting best available treatment and is very unwell. Mm. So if it were that, that we had some panacea that would be, you know, would be great, then there's, there's two problems. There's probably more than two, but there's two problems with that strategy. One, the medications just don't work well enough. But the other is by the time you've become really sick with COVID, you've had. Two, three, four days of being very infective, and so you're passing on the the virus, and you might get away with it, with or without whatever medications. But the person next to you might not. And the more we can protect, you know, this is this is a clear example of where uh, your your decisions are not just about you; they're about all the people around you. And um, that that is the absolute key message, and that is exactly why um, we're recommending vaccine to to you know ages to younger kids and teenagers mm. is on balance in reality their risk of getting really sick from COVID is very small. It's not nothing, but it's very small. The chances of them getting very sick from the vaccine. Is very small, smaller, but very small. But you've got competing rare risks. It's not actually about them. It's about protecting everyone else. But you know, my kids and all of their friends, that they're really pro-vax. You know that, and I've seen that time and time again. And thankfully for the human race, <laughs> kids, kids get altruism. They get that whole idea of protecting each other. Somehow we become old and jaded and a little bit selfish. Um, but you know that that's the, that's the reason. If you were to stand up in front of kids, why should you get vaccinated?
0: It's to protect you know your mum and dad and your
1: grandma and your grandpa. Done.
0: Is there anything else we haven't touched on today that patients are coming in with concerns about? Um, I think that
1: one of the, some of the main questions that come up are that these these are new vaccines, um, and 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 what do we? And we we we've sort of we've discussed that. If we could have it any other way, we would. I mean, this is this is a really nasty virus. It's almost the perfect virus. It doesn't it is very infective and very serious in some. If it were a more uh, deadly virus, like Ebola, it actually would then quarantine itself. You know, one of the things with Ebola is you realise very quickly who's got it because everyone gets very, very sick and dies of it. Whereas this one's got that thing where it can pass through some people without having any symptoms at all, and then, you know, five in a hundred get desperately unwell with it. So it just rips through. And, and you know, so it's created the public health crisis of, of many generations and we needed an answer, and vaccine is close to a perfect answer look if we were if we could have two three years ago or whenever this came out said in two years' time we're going to have a vaccine that's ninety percent effective eighty ninety percent everyone would have just been screaming in celebration, then it rolls around, and we start finding all these problems. I just find it really quite strange in the passage of history it's um I'm not. I'm not riding off the side effect. There's definitely risks. There's definitely side effects. They're small, but my goodness, it's so much better than the problem.
0: Mm. Are we going to continue to see strains? I guess that's the other thing that we've. The us. Common men and women have learnt over the last two years that there's strains of these viruses. We don't just have one COVID, and that's it. Is there going to be more COVID strains? Yeah, strains and variants, and the fear, next
1: Delta. Fear the variant. Um, so it. It's, it's interesting because, for example, people will likely know but the flu vaccine, the the influenza virus is constantly mutating and it's a seasonal virus. So it comes around in autumn winter, goes away through the summer or goes to the northern hemisphere, and then comes back different enough from the previous year that you need to get a different vaccine. And the thought is with COVID that we're going to see a similar thing that it will mutate enough that we'll need to have changed vaccines one of the hopes because everyone keeps our experience so far has been that the variants are more transmissible and maybe even a bit more what we say virulent or a bit more deadly than the than the type before my hope is that the covid vaccine will do what other vac- what other virus not the covid vaccine sorry that the covid virus will do what other viruses have done through history which is to generally mutate to a less deadly form a less virulent the virus doesn't want to kill its host it doesn't want to to get into someone and kill kill it because then the virus dies it wants to go on with and through history, viruses have tended to migrate more towards the common cold that just gets passed around without it causing massive problems. So even though everyone keeps saying, oh, let's fear the variant that that gets more and more serious, there is the possibility that we get a variant that's less serious and very transmissible and becomes sort of a form of auto, um, auto vaccination. We can't, of course, you know, we can't just sort of go, oh, let's just wait for that to happen and let millions of people die in the meantime. But just as we, just as variants may become a big problem, there is a small chance they could actually be part of the solution. Mm. That's my, that's
0: part of my optimistic a, hope. It's a good, it's a good answer. I like yeah. it. Last question: There's going to be more covids, different yep. new viruses coming. Is the world in a better shape to to go after it, to handle it, to get on top of it quickly? I think so. I. Yes, and medicine fact, and medicine too, with what we know now and the well, ability to develop vaccines and. It's a it's a very good question because one of the other things is that
1: um, through this crisis and the money that's been thrown at it, there's a public awareness all of a sudden of infectious diseases, and I think that the next you know. You know, the next virus that threatens our planet, we will get onto it earlier. People will be alert. In fact, probably hyper alert, um, and and our systems of of public health, um, contact tracing, all of those things are so much better than they've been. So we've learned a hell of a lot. The the whole industry, science, you know, this concept of mRNA vaccines and mRNA technology is now actually going into a whole lot of areas of that of. Um, diagnostics and therapies, nothing to do with viruses, even cardiovascular disease that may end up being really helpful. So, throwing billions of dollars at the <laughs> crisis of our time is going to have some benefits in medicine, way away from the problem of COVID. So, there's some really nice sort of off, um, you know, off-label or off-target benefits that we're going to get from this. The downside uh, is that I think. Covid and and it has been very socially divisive. It's 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 kind of really strange. Although it's nice that we that it teaches us to think outside of ourselves, it also has highlighted the um uh you know highlighted divisions between people. We've not ever had the situation before where everyone wants to know someone else's health status or their what medication or vaccine they're having. Um, and we kind of need to do that, but it is bringing out some sort of some tricky, some tricky politics and some tricky aspects that um, hopefully we can learn from that as well because I think we're more intolerant uh, than we've ever been before. You walk down the street, and someone wasn't wearing a mask, and you go, oh, he wasn't wearing a mask. <laughs> and I get that because people not wearing a mask has an implication on other people, but um, I wouldn't mind just getting back to the kind of um, situation where we're a little bit more tolerant of, of different people's beliefs. And, and I suppose, again, one of my slight nuances is that I really do hope that – because – um, I'm a doctor saying go out and get vaccinated. What you know, big surprise. <laughs> the 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 anti-vax movement is broad. There are some people that I would label as as badly misinformed, you know, on the spectrum toward mad, but there's also people that are just anxious and concerned with with you know really understandable concerns and i think that it's our job and hopefully this podcast helps to some degree to to inform those people for it to be a discussion rather than us just saying you haven't been vaccinated you're bad you have been vaccinated you're good i don't i don't see it as that simple as a doctor you see people who make decisions that are different to mine all the time i say look i think you should take that statin they say i don't want to I don't see them as a criminal. That's decision making. Whereas with this, partly because the effects of an individual has an effect on the community, but we're not, we're going to need to get that tolerance back, and um, even when they're things that we really disagree with.
0: What a good finale! Thanks, Andre. That was that was really good. I think it answered a lot of, for me, a lot of personal questions, and hopefully to the listeners, it gave you a, a greater insight as to what. COVID is, what the vaccines are and how it affects um, your cardiology but also your overall health if you do enjoy this podcast please leave a review on the iTunes store share it with a friend uh, and if you've got any questions uh, you can send us an email or leave a comment on social media thanks Andre thanks Alex